Morning, Northbrook. <coughs> Allergy season is here. If you open your Bibles to Hebrews 7. Normally before I come up here and preach, I check to make sure I have the, my Bible up here and because sometimes I, this is my preaching Bible and I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to leave it here. And I uh, sometimes take it down and, and I try to get up here ahead of time and check. And I didn't get that chance this morning, and so I brought a backup Bible. So I'm double barrel this morning, just so you know. That was a dumb joke, sorry about that. Glad you're here. I saw daffodils in bloom on my way here this morning. So there's a, there's a house on 74th Street, that's one of those condos, and they have daffodils off their porch, and they always bloom ahead of everybody else's. So I was driving by there this morning and noticed them. And I thought, maybe spring really will come someday. Tomorrow's supposed to be warm. This is your weather forecast for the week. Tomorrow's supposed to be warm. And then we go back to freezing, almost. But uh, it's coming. I'm going to read um, verses 1 to 28 of chapter 7 again. Uh, And Andrew, as he was praying... It's funny sometimes how his prayers dovetail with what I'm going to say, but uh, uh, he didn't know what I was going to preach on this morning, but um, he, he brought up a, a passage that says that uh, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And the question that that has raised in my mind, that, that thought of God's holiness and God's righteousness and then that he actually, everything he does is founded, his rules reign, everything he does is founded in righteousness and justice. On the one hand, that's a, a beautiful thought that we have a God who's just. On the other hand, how in the world could humans ever approach that God? That's, that's threatening um, when you understand your sinfulness. And a, a quick a quick comeback to that would be, well, we're forgiven in Christ, which is true. But what allows the forgiven sinner, so to speak, if you will, if that is really the case, what allows that person to draw near to God? And that is a repetitive theme in Hebrews. Draw near to God, draw near to God, draw near to God because of what Jesus has accomplished. And it's more than forgiveness. Jesus has accomplished something on our behalf that is, that goes beyond just forgiveness and allows us, therefore, to draw near to a throne that's founded on righteousness and justice. And that's what we're, we've been seeing in Hebrews 7, I mean Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and, and just thinking as we move ahead, 8, 9, and 10, which are some of my favorite sections in Scripture, uh, chapters in Scripture. Uh, and explain to us what Christ has accomplished so that we can draw near. So where we are today is kind of a summary and a transition moving forward to uh, chapter 8, 9, and 10. But hopefully um, you'll see the answer to the question of how we can draw near to God. But let's read uh, chapter 7 of Hebrews together. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes 
through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. For it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. In our study of Hebrews over the last several weeks, we've been learning about Jesus as our great high priest. He's been hammering in on that in different ways since really the end of chapter two. And much of what the writer has communicated in chapter 7 and partly in chapter 6 regards Jesus and his, the author's explanation, really a sermon um, in the Jewish context, it would be called a midrash, a, a commentary. It's been a, a, a commentary or an explanation of Psalm 110. And we've looked at that a couple of times, but he keeps quoting from Psalm 110. He's done that here again in chapter 7, in verses 17 and verse 21. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The, the, the author is making his whole argument based upon that statement. It's, it's broken up here in chapter 7, but it's really one statement He's making, he's, he's hinging everything about Jesus as our high priest on, on those statements or that statement from Psalm 110. And he's been coming back to it over and over again. And he's doing that because in that Psalm, David prophesies of a future king priest. Interestingly, and um, I don't even know the passage, Scott mentioned it to me before the service this morning we were talking about uh, upcoming Good Friday and Easter, and he's been putting those together for us, the services. Um, but uh, what was the statement made uh, by God through Samuel to Eli again? There will be a faithful priest who will serve in this house Yeah. So, so God said to Samuel to tell Eli, and if you remember, if you know anything about Eli, he was not exactly a faithful priest. His sons uh, were, were reprobate. Uh, but God said through Samuel to Eli that God would that He would raise up a faithful service, a servant, a faithful priest who would serve 
Him forever, serve in His presence forever. And I'd totally forgotten about that passage when Scott reminded me of it. But even before David, Samuel was already prophesying of a future forever priest. But Psalm 110 takes it even further. David takes it even further and says that this priest who's going to be righteous is also going to be a powerful king who reigns righteously and is going to bring together the two offices of priest and king and that he would reign as king and he would reign as priest to mediate on behalf of his people forever. And as the writer unpacks, the writer of Hebrews unpacks Psalm 110, we find and we learn that this person that he's referring to, that David referred to, and that God through Samuel referred to, is Jesus. And repeatedly we've been told about this king priest and his unique character, that he was the unique choice of God, the unique oath of God. Uh, uh, an interesting thing in Hebrews, there's, Hebrews is, is a beautifully written book. It really is. The more you letter, the more you read it, the more things begin to come out of it. Uh, how the author just repeats ideas. But one of those ideas, remember he started with God spoke, hear God's voice, listen to God's voice, your ears are dull. He's got that hearing thing going through there. He continues to talk about this Melchizedekian priest. But he also uses this idea of an oath repeatedly. That God, God doesn't just promise, but he's actually sworn oaths about the things that he said he will or will not do. And one of the first one he brings up is, is the wilderness uh, experience of the Israelites and the people who rebelled and wouldn't go into the land and rejected God uh, as, their, as their God, ultimately. And he, that's the first time he mentions it, and it's a negative oath that God swore in his wrath that they would not enter the land. And he swore that they would not enter his rest. And what happened? They didn't. They all died in the wilderness. Not one of them entered the land. Not one of them entered the rest. Um, he, got, he brings up again later God's oath that he made to Abraham, if you remember that passage that we talked about from Genesis 22, where um, Abraham is told to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And God swears by an oath about Abraham's descendants and their possession of the land. That's the second oath that he brings up. And here he brings up this third oath of God, that, that he swore in an oath about this king priest, his son, Jesus, and that he, would, that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what the, what the writer wants you to get is there are promises that God has made, but there are some that he'll never break those promises. But there are some promises that God felt were so important he wanted people to catch it. And he swore by an oath to those people that he is going to do what he's going to do. And all we have to do is look back and see that God keeps his promises. He keeps those oaths. And so here we have this oath related to this king priest who's going to be a, one who mediates on, on behalf of God's people to God. So there's this unique character, unique choice of God, unique oath of God, and a unique term of his service before God. And that's one of the things that he's going to kind of key in here is the term of his service. But the focus through Hebrews that he wants us to get, and I, I was telling Scott basically this morning that I'm starting to feel like a broken record because he keeps going after this idea. And, and you start to feel like, so how do I say what he's saying in a different way? It, really here he's summarizing a lot of it. But he wants us to get that in that suffering is a part of this life. And it does not mean that God is against you. He's actually for you. And he wants you to draw near to him. 
It is, it is uh, Andrew and I were talking yesterday about Ligon Duncan, which I've mentioned him a few times. He's a, um, he used to be a pastor in Jacksonville, Mississippi. He's a, a Presbyterian pastor. Um, and, and now he's uh, the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Jacksonville. But I love to listen to, to Ligon Duncan. And I said to Andrew, I guess what it is, is there's a pastor's heart that comes through him. He's incredibly intelligent. And the stuff he brings out of scripture, is just like, wow, I've never seen that before. But in the midst of being incredibly intelligent, he, he speaks in a way, and he actually writes in a way that, that just comforts you in a sense. I don't know how else to say it. There's, there's a, there's a sh- shepherd's heart that just penetrates through his, his preaching. And that's what I feel like with the writer of Hebrews in a very tender way. He wants us to understand that we aren't just forgiven, but we actually, and it isn't just that God's there and if we want to, maybe we can get in there and talk to him about in the midst of his busyness. But, but the writer of Hebrews continually says, come, come, draw near. And that's, that's his point here. Draw near to God. And, and when Jesus became our king and priest, he accomplished things that allow us to draw near to God. In this passage for today here in this last section, really verses um, uh, 22 to 28 of Hebrews 7, as I said, he's, he's beginning to shift. Uh, the writer's beginning to shift. He's summarizing what he's been saying and he's shifting in his emphasis to something even more specific about Jesus's work as our great high priest. But ultimately his point remains. As he moves forward, his point remains that because Jesus is our high priest, we can and should draw near to God. After he gets done with eight, nine, and most of 10, or maybe the beginning of 10, he's going to say, because of Jesus, because of what he has accomplished, we have confidence to enter boldly into the throne room of God, to draw near, to come into his presence. So he's, he's pushing us this way. He's, he's moving us in this mindset as a shepherd towards this is who God is. This is what Jesus has done. This is who God is. And this is what God desires is for us to draw near to him. But he begins to draw our attention here at the end of chapter 7 to what Jesus has done specifically that Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection has, has accomplished to specifically establish a new and better covenant for God's people. That statement in verse 22 of chapter 7. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Not just a new covenant, but a better covenant. What Jesus, who he is, because God swore an oath, makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Covenant. What does that mean that he's the guarantor of a better covenant? How many of you have used the word guarantor this past week? You actually did use it? Yeah, you guys are in the process of a house thing there. So you, you probably did use it. It's not a term that most of us use. We're not that familiar with it. Um, right away, we probably would assume that its meaning is somehow connected to the idea of a guarantee. And that, that's true. It is connected to the idea of a guarantee. One definition of what this word meant at the time of the writing of Hebrews, and it really hasn't changed that much, but, it, but that definition that somebody, uh, one of the lexicons put together is a person, a guarantor is a person of sufficient means who offers his belongings, his freedom, 
or often as life as an assurance that another person will meet certain specifications or requirements, especially in a financial context of debt repayment. I think the closest term we have to this in common language that most of us have heard and, and are familiar with is a cosigner. A guarantor is a cosigner. And there are a lot of parents out there today who are familiar with that term because their students have, I mean, their children have gone to college as students and their, student, their, their children need to take out student loans to pay for school. And those students don't have a credit rating in order to get a loan. So the parents co-sign with the student. And what they are doing when they co-sign with that student, which I advise you not to do, do not co-sign with anyone. Do not co-sign. But if you feel led to do it, that's your business. It's not unbiblical. But what that is saying is, I'm putting my possessions as the parent of this child, I'm putting my possessions on the line, guaranteeing that if they default on the loan, can't pay what's required, I will pay it. There's a side note that's brought up a whole new thing in our culture where grandparents are now paying off debt for their grandchildren in school or still paying, grandparents are still paying on their children's debts because the kids have borrowed so much money. But they're putting everything they have on the line for this other person to guarantee that that person is going to fulfill or meet the requirements. I find that to be a fascinating idea when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant on our behalf. There's all kinds of things that came to my mind. But obviously the writer of Hebrews is not writing about a financial transaction. When he speaks of Jesus being the guarantor of a better covenant, and he's, he's speaking in terms of the old covenant, that there's a new covenant and it's a better covenant, it's a superior covenant, which by the way, is another term that comes through Hebrews over and over again. He's not talking about buying into the covenant. A covenant is, is in a sense could be a contract, but when, when, when the writers of the Bible talk of a covenant, when God made a covenant with his people in the Old Testament, and when he established a new and better covenant in Jesus. He's not speaking of a, a, just a legal document that gives rights and privileges, responsibilities expected. It's not just that. He's speaking of, the writers are speaking of God establishing relationship with people. That's really the idea of the covenant. When you, when you go through the Old Testament, there's a word that gets used a lot that we don't often recognize, but it's the Hebrew word hesed. And it gets translated as mercy, steadfast love, um, all kinds of different terms that are used. I've used the illustration with hesed that it's like a diamond. You, you can look at a diamond and if it's cut, it'll sparkle in all kinds of different ways by how you turn it. And the word hesed is like that. Depending on how it's used, it has different meanings. But in the ESV Bible, the way it comes through most often is steadfast love. But the important thing with hesed is it, it was a word to the Jews that reminded them that God's steadfast love was connected to his covenant promises. That's the way they saw it. When they thought of God's steadfast love, it was a love that established a relationship with these people and, and would be the keeping of God's promises. His mercy existed and established the covenant and, and allowed the people to experience God's mercy. These terms that are used over and over again throughout the Old Testament, it's a, it's a word that's used 
hundreds of times in the Old Testament, reminded the Jews first of God's covenant with them. And, and, and when they thought of it, they didn't think of it in contractual terms. They thought of it in terms of relationship. And I, I want you to understand this, that when he speaks of the guarantor of a better relationship, he's not speaking of a financial transaction because no one can buy their way into relationship with God. I was talking to a pastor friend this week and he was talking to me about the love of God. And, and he, said, he said this to me and it struck me and it's gonna strike you. But he says things in a way that, that uh, often strike you. Talking about how how we come to God, and he said, God is not a whore who loves us because we give him money. And when he said that, I, you know, you don't use those two, you don't use God and that word in the same sentence very often. And I just kind of was like, and then, I, and then he said, it's true. He said, we think that we can buy God off. We think we can get his love through what we bring. And he doesn't work that way because he's not that kind of a person. Peter made this clear in his letter when he said that we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. There are actually people who had that idea that you could buy your way into relationship with God. God does not bend his ear towards us because you put money in the offering. God does not show you favor because you read your Bible in the morning. God does not love you because of anything you do. And he doesn't show you favor because of anything you do. We don't draw near to God because of what we do that we think is spiritually good. And we don't lose God's favor because of anything we do that we think is spiritually wrong. The covenant exists because Jesus is the guarantor of the covenant not us. What's really in play here in this statement in verse 22 is a spiritual transaction. It's a spiritual transaction that takes place to establish this relationship. You see, there is a reason why, apart from Jesus, no human can enjoy any level of relationship with God and no one can draw near to God. I've said this many times over the years and I, I get people who just really bristle at it. God has no obligation to hear any prayer you ever pray. Period. For the unsaved person who is not a child of God, I would go so far, I mean, there's people who disagree with me on this, but I would go so far as to say, God does not hear your prayers. How can he? You're his enemy. You've made yourself his enemy. You're hostile to him. And as an unsaved person, your prayers are really about getting out of circumstances that you don't like. Or getting somebody else out of a circumstance you don't like. I would argue that the only prayer that God listens to from an unsaved person is a prayer for salvation. And that then brings the person into relationship so that God hears every prayer of that person. But we have no right we have no ability to enjoy God on any level apart from Jesus. 
And that, that reason for that, the reason why, apart from Jesus, no one can approach God, takes us all the way back in human history to those two poor people who forever will be understood as the ruiners of the human race, Adam and Eve. If you think about it, at one time, they did enjoy God's presence. Unhindered, unhindered, directly in God's presence and, and somehow seeing God in some way. They knew Him. They spoke with Him. He would come to them in the cool of the evening to talk with them. They drew near to God. They had that privilege. But when they ate the forbidden fruit, they immediately entered a new state of relationship with God. Basically, no relationship with God from their perspective. They sinned, and their sin ruptured the relationship. Separation came because they ate the forbidden fruit. And death entered into the world. And we're told that all die because all sin. Death became a part of the created sphere. Not just Adam and Eve. Plants began to die. Animals began to die. All across the board, the creation was affected by their sin, and the stench of death became the norm. If you, if you just go past chapter 3 of Genesis into chapter 4 and what follows, you've got this long genealogy. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and they lived so many years, and they died. And so-and-so begat so-and-so, and they lived and died. And it's just repetitive. Every one of them ends, except for Enoch, every one of them ends with, and they died. They lived hundreds of years, but they died. And part of those genealogies there in Genesis are there to confirm what God said would happen. You eat, and you will die. And person after person after person began to die because person after person after person was a sinner. There was only one thing that could redeem humans and bring forgiveness of that sin, and that was blood. Blood was the payment. Animals were sacrificed. But the problem for humans was that even though blood could be shed, even though a human could die and pay the penalty of sin with their death and their blood, ultimately their blood was worthless. They would pay with blood. Humans would die and they would pay with blood, their own blood. But that payment was worthless because they were not innocent. The death of each human, we hate funerals. We hate death. We, we try to avoid death, it's repulsive to us. But the death of each human and the shedding of the blood for each human is the penalty. It can't bring you anything with God because you deserve to die. Just the way it's set up. So if we go back to this idea of a spiritual transaction, and that's what I really want us to see in this. Before God, there is in a sense a debt that has to be paid. But humans can't bring anything to the table to establish that relationship with God. I have nothing. You have nothing. In order to have covenant with God, to have relationship with God, to be a part of His people, there's nothing that any of us can bring to the table to secure 
fellowship with God. And that reality means that if nothing changed, humanity is without hope of God in this life and the next. You say, okay, you're saying a lot of basic things. I am. But it's important for us to get these basic concepts in order to understand the bigger picture. I, I think of the houses that I bought over time. Uh, actually, I thought of the houses that my bank has bought over the time. And, and essentially, there's, there, there becomes a, there's, a uh, there's an underwriter in there. Sometimes they'll say, we're, we're working with the underwriters to get better terms. That's the guarantor who's saying, these people are going to pay. And we're, we're willing to front the money because we believe that they can pay in the long run. So here we come to this table that we sit down with, and it's, it's very different in Iowa than it was in Wisconsin. You have, you have all these people sitting at the table, signing documents, and they're pushing papers in front of you that you don't even read, because there's pages and pages, initial here, sign here, initial here, and they have all the pages marked with yellow highlight where you're supposed to sign. And you sign your life away, and a guarantor has also signed their life away, so to speak, on your behalf. But when we come to this table, we don't have what we need to secure a relationship because we're sinners. And we have no one who will stand and say, I will guarantee. But God who is love and God who is rich in mercy had already established a solution to the problem of human sin and separation. Before he ever created, there was a plan in place. He promised to Eve that there would be a descendant of hers that would bring reconciliation between humans and himself. When God promised that there would be an offspring from her, a male who would crush the serpent's head, he was promising what, what she would have heard and what Adam would have heard was the thing that brought the separation between us and God is going to be killed and reconciliation is going to be found in this one who's coming. As time went by, God spoke through prophets. And as the writer of Hebrews would say, long ago and in many ways, he spoke through prophets, clarifying who that person would be and what he would accomplish not only on behalf of humans, but on behalf of the entire creation. Those promises didn't just speak of what God would do for humans, but it would be for the creation that groans, waiting for the redemption. That person would offer a blood sacrifice on behalf of sinners. Isaiah 53 is the most clear presentation of the one who would die in the place of others, in the place of sinners. And we know, as we read the documents of the New Testament, that Jesus would be the Lamb of God, whose blood would take away the sin of the world. And yet, humans still have a problem. This is what came to me in relation to the guarantor idea. Even if your sin is paid for by the blood of the Lamb, even if a person says, I trust in the blood of the Lamb for forgiveness of sin, what happens if there's future sin? This is a crucial point in the understanding of covenant relationship with God. What happens if you accept Christ's blood payment for your sin 
and then you turn around and sin. How can you draw near to God if you sin after trusting in Christ's blood? Now, there's different answers to that. Some would say that you've got to come back and do confession and repentance, penance, and if you fulfill these acts of penance, then through a religious ritual called Mass, you can be restored. But what if I sin again? Confession, penance, Mass, restored. And you do that, and you do that, and you do that. Some do it once a year. Some do it every week. Some do it every day. Some, there's Mass every day that you can go to. Because some realize every day I live under threat of the sin that I have now committed. Say, yeah, I don't like that religion. I don't like that group. They're so wrong. But then we have some Baptists who say, if you sin, confess. And come back again for forgiveness. And you're taken care of. But you break fellowship. It's very, very similar. There's nuances that are different. And it's why I came up with the term of baptitholicism. It's really what we, what many people do. Because they don't believe that there's any remedy for the sin that I commit after forgiveness. On the one hand, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are going to inform us regarding the scope of forgiveness found in Jesus' blood sacrifice. And we're going to learn that His forgiveness, the, the forgiveness that comes from God the Father through the blood of the Lamb is for past, present, and future sin. But on the other hand, I would ask, how can a sinner, even if forgiven, draw near to God? Even if you are fully forgiven, how can you, as a sinner, draw near to God? Because you're still dirty even if you're forgiven. If that's all that Jesus did. And that's where the idea of a guarantor comes into view. Think of it this way. The spiritual, the spiritual transaction needs to happen, but the one party does not have good enough credit. Through bad decisions, irresponsibility, and spiritual bankruptcy, they have no credit. They have no collateral. So someone steps in and cleans up their record. The forgiveness of Christ. Someone steps in and cleans up your credit history. And now your credit history is good, no, you have no credit history. You have nothing. You simply don't have bad credit history anymore. For those of you whose children are teenagers and about to become adults, and if you want to establish credit for them, good luck on that. Because they have no credit. That's why parents end up co-signing. On paper, the past is erased, but you're still lacking what's needed to be worthy of consideration. And this is where Jesus becomes the guarantor. And I think this is why these credentials are mentioned in verse 26. Look at them with me, if you will. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's going to be a critical concept. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Those are his credentials. That's who he is as the guarantor. And he steps up to the table and says, not only are they forgiven, but all of my history, all of my credit, all of my collateral is theirs. You're not just forgiven in, when that happens, but Jesus is actually guaranteeing, and catch this, Jesus is actually guaranteeing the future righteousness of the sinner. That's what's necessary for you to draw near to God, is righteousness, and that's what you don't have, even if you're forgiven. You don't have righteousness, and only the righteous can draw near to God. The Old Testament makes that abundantly clear. Only the righteous. But forgiveness is not the same as being righteous. It's just erased the sin, but it hasn't changed the person. So there's a lot of technicalities for Sunday morning. They are, but they are so crucial to you understanding who you are before God. Jesus steps up to that table and says, they have nothing to approach God. But because they have trusted in me, Father, you have credited everything of me to their account. We have a term for it, imputation. Imputation means that it was a two-way thing. All of your sin was put on Jesus and, and, and He bore all of your sin at the cross and we are very familiar with that. What we're not as familiar with is that all of Jesus' righteousness was given to you in the eyes of the Father. All of His righteousness. Go look up imputation. You're going to find out that I'm not off on some wild tangent. This is mainstream orthodox theology. That the righteousness of God, of Jesus, his perfect obedience to the law was credited to your account forever. Forever. So you don't just stand forgiven before the Father. That would not be enough. Jesus is the guarantor because he comes forward and says, they have my righteousness. Little children, I write these things to you so that you don't sin. 1 John 2. But if you sin, and really it could be translated, but since you sin, remember this. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Father, look at their record. Look at their record. It's perfect obedience to the law. If you're like me, and I've believed this now for almost 20 years, Something deep down inside of me says, no, 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 no. That's not possible. There's got to be something. There's got to be some retribution. There's got to be something that comes back on you because of the sin that you committed. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus took it at the cross. Jesus took it and his righteousness is now yours. When a sinner places their trust in Jesus' sacrifice, they're not only forgiven, 
but their righteous, that Jesus' righteousness is credited to the account of the sinner. So the person no longer approaches God on basis of their own righteousness, but Jesus' perfect righteousness. And it's a forever transaction because Jesus is forever our high priest. He is forever the guarantor of the transaction. We can never spiritually default. Never. All of the sin we would ever commit was credited to Jesus and paid for, and all of the righteousness that Jesus has ever possessed is credited to us. And it's forever because that's how long his priesthood and his work as our guarantor continues. We can forever draw near to God and be in his presence and be fully accepted in his presence because of the credentials of Jesus. And so for eternity, our Father in heaven not only allows us to draw near, but invites us to do so because Jesus' work of intercession on our behalf never ends. Say, is there any other place in Scripture that would argue the same thing? Yeah. There's this guy. He's kind of a minor character in the Bible, and you probably haven't heard of him much, but his name is Paul the Apostle. He's kind of a shadowy figure. But if you turn with Romans 8 to me, with me, have you ever heard of Romans 8? It's kind of a familiar passage. It's always nice when you don't have to find something obscure to prove your point. I want you to start in verse 1 of Romans 8. And I want you to listen to it very clearly and hear it very clearly. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that's a really hard concept to grasp. I'm being a little bit sarcastic here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now let's jump down. We all know Romans 8.28. There's a whole lot of other really good stuff in Romans 8. But if you'll jump down to verse 34. Let's go to verse 31 first. What shall we say to these things? All the things that he said above this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now we hear that, and we hear it accurately. If God's for us, who out there can stand against us? But I I want you to catch another little nuance in there. If God is for you, God is not against you. That's a really important nuance. It's unsaid. It's assumed. Because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And therefore God is for you. And therefore God is never against you. But let's go down a little bit further into verse 34. Who is to condemn? There is therefore now no condemnation. And even if condemnation was to be brought forward, who's going to condemn Who can condemn you? What does he say? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Hebrews 7 says that he makes intercession for us forever. Romans 8 says, because he intercedes for us at the right hand of God, There is nobody who can condemn you because God sees Christ's righteousness, not your sin. But isn't he all-knowing? Yep, he is. He chooses to see the righteousness of Jesus. But you say, I can't do that. I can't choose to see this because this is just glaring to me. Yeah, you're not God. He is capable 
of acknowledging that all of that was paid for with Jesus' blood. And he is capable of celebrating and acknowledging that all of your righteousness now is Jesus' righteousness. So he goes on and he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes through this familiar list of all these possibilities and he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. None of these things can condemn you and God is never against you even if these things are happening. He's not against you. Paul reminds us that Jesus died for our sin, was raised in victory over death, and is now at the right hand of God interceding for our sins. So the answer is no one can condemn us. At least not the one whose condemnation matters. So Paul, in the end, concludes that our fellowship with God and our ability to draw near to God rests not in us or anything besides Jesus' work on our behalf. And our fellowship with God cannot be broken because Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. So I want to ask you something this morning. Do you trust God's word? Do you trust God's word? Are you trusting in Jesus' priestly work on your behalf? Are you resting in the truth that nothing you do or don't do can ever change God's attitude towards you? Are you banking? Are you banking the quality of God's love towards you on how well you performed this last week? Are you, are you thinking that you're, you're making deposits and you can buy God's relationship with you? Do you give offerings because you fear, fear he'll ding your bank account if you don't? A lot of people live in fear of that. Or maybe you think you'll shake a few more dollars out of the heavenly money tree if you drop another dollar in the offering box. God doesn't respond to money. Money can't buy you love, as the old saying goes, especially God's. So I'd encourage you this week, as the Christian world focuses on the cross and the tomb, ask God to help you understand more fully what God has and continues to accomplish on your behalf. And and ask God to help you to believe that he is never against you. That he is always for you if you're his child. And all the ugliness and junk of this world is not God coming after you. There will be those that God comes after and it's going to be ugly and nasty in the final day. But that will never be your experience if you're a child of God. We need a massive shift in our thinking from a works-based performance mentality to a resting in the finished work of Christ because it affects all of how we view life and what's happening to us and whether or not we're going to keep going in our walk with God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use these words and more importantly, your word in our lives to help us to understand what our relationship with you is based on. You know how easy it is for us to grow weary in well-doing. You know how frail we are. 
You are our Creator. We are but dust. Father, help us to not only mentally recognize Your love for us, not only mentally, academically acknowledge that we, as Your children, stand before You in the righteousness of Christ, but God, help those ideas to shape our thinking of our relationship with you and how you interact with us and what you are doing in our lives so that we can truly believe that you are at work for good on behalf of those that love you. And to believe that it's possible that you are, through these events, making us more, image, more into the image of your Son. And maybe most of all, Father, for us to want that most. I know I struggle with that in my own life. And I pray that you would help me to want that more than my plans, my agendas, and my comfort. And I ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.